What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. Now, look, for those of y'all who are new here, the purpose of Living Corporate is to create a space that affirms black and brown experiences in the workplace, right? There are certain things that only we can really understand. And when I say we, I mean the collective non-white professional <laughs> in corporate America. Um, and when we look around, if you like Google being black and brown in corporate America, you may see like a post um, in Huffington Post or something that kind of communicates from a position of lack. But I don't know if we necessarily see a lot of content that empowers and affirms our identity and our experience. And that's really the whole purpose of living corporate. It's with that that I'm really excited to talk to y'all about the See It To Be It series. Amy C. Wanniger, um, who has been a guest on the show, who's a writer for Living Corporate, and who's also the author of Network Beyond Bias, um, she's actually partnered with Living Corporate to actually have an interviewing series where she actually sits down with black and brown professionals so that we can learn about what they actually do and see ourselves in these roles, right? So it's a variety of industries that she's, she's talking to a lot of different types of folks. You're going to be able to see what they do, and at the same time, you're going to hopefully be able to envision yourself in that role. Hence the title, See It to Be It. Okay? So check this out. The next thing you're going to hear is this interview with Amy C. Wanniger. Y'all hang tight. Catch y'all next time. Peace. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm doing great today. I'm so glad to have you on the show. So I was just wonder if you could tell me just a little bit about the work that you do um, with your company and sort of how you got involved in doing legal work for HR. Okay. Most attorneys, they've wanted to be that their whole life. But me, I started as at age 16, I went to college and I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, <laughs> and but I knew I loved fashion. So I went to school and got a degree in fashion merchandising and retail management. And then one day um, I was, after I got my undergraduate degree, my university at the time started their MBA program. So I decided that I would go into the MBA program because I still didn't know what I wanted to do. And one day I was having a conversation with a friend of mine from high school and he was telling me about the fact that he was going to take the LSAT and he was going to go to law school. And I was like, hmm, because at the time I was like, I was 20, 20 years old. I was 20 and um, I had just had a baby and I was like, hmm, well, you know what? I could go to law school and I could take the LSAT. <laughs> so I decided to take the LSAT. Um, which is the entrance exam for law school. I applied to one law school. That was it. I was like, if I'm going to go, then they'll, they'll accept me. So I applied to one law school and I got in and almost 24 years later, here I am. That's amazing. So your path is not too dissimilar from mine, except I started out on a law path. Okay. Because I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, I grew up in a very blue collar community. I knew no one who went to college. I went to school and took classes that were interesting because I didn't know what it meant to graduate with a college degree right. or what kind of jobs were out there. And um, so my so my thought was, oh, I'll go work for the ACLU because mm -hmm. I read about them somewhere and I thought, oh, that'd be fun, right? Because that's a normal thing to think when you're 19, 20. So right. I was getting ready to take the LSAT and I decided maybe I should look into um, – what law school would cost. Like, what's this actually going to cost me? Right. And I saw what the tuition was going to be. And then I, about the same time, I learned the meaning of the phrase pro bono. And I decided law school was not going to be in my, 
So I went and got a computer science degree and spent 20 years doing that. And now I'm back to my passion, which is, you know, diversity and inclusion and equality. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, never if you when I was a child, if you would ask, oh, you want no, that was never on the list of Uh me. And it's so funny because when I was younger, I used to wish that my school would burn down and I would hide under my sister's desk and everything because I hated school. So you would never think that after all the degrees that I have, but you know. So what changed for you in terms of being a student? Did something click or did you just find a passion? I think just because, I mean, I'm Jamaican and I come from a family of very educated people and, you know, education was just mandatory. It wasn't a (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't an option and it was just the path and once I was you know in school I did well in school um, when I got to law school I found out that I really loved the law mm-hmm. and I um, I started uh, originally thinking that I wanted to just be a public defender which I did for three years so um, that was really my initial passion of getting into it to really help people who were underserved and to be a defense lawyer because I, I love being a defense lawyer. Um, and I did that for a while. And that's where I really learned my skills as a trial lawyer. I learned how to really speak on my feet and to be prepared for any type of situation and be able to <laughs> change my thoughts and change, you know, topics on a dime. So it was excellent training, mm-hmm. but it wasn't something that, you know, I set out on a path to do. So how did you make the move from trial lawyer to HR expert? So they're one in the same, actually, in my, the way that I do my job. So after I left the public defender's office, I went to work for a civil law firm practicing employment law. And at the time, I didn't know anything about employment law. I had, you know, all throughout law school, I had worked for, you know, public defender's offices or with death penalty appeals. And so I was fortunate that the trial skills that I had were going to be able to be used in this firm. And so I had to learn employment law. And along the way, people think a lot, especially um, employment lawyers, that on the defense side that all we're doing is, you know, litigating cases. We're being reactive. But my practice has always been very proactive, meaning, you know, training HR um, professionals, making sure that they put things in place, policies, structures, processes in place beforehand to try to avoid or reduce the risk of uh, litigation. And so along the way in these past 20 something years of being an employment lawyer, I have gained the expertise of HR. And so it's both. So they go together. They're not separate things. Okay. Thanks for the explanation. I appreciate that. (laughs) No problem. So what's been the biggest surprise to you about the work that you do now that you didn't expect before you got into it? Uh, The madness of people. (laughs) What do you mean by that? So I, I'm always amazed at what some people get up and go to work and say, I am going to do this today. When we get our cases and we see the facts and we see the things that are being complained about, some of the things are just unbelievable. Like you would never imagine that somebody, some rational thinking, I guess maybe they're not rational thinking, but some rational thinking person would get up and say, yeah, that's a good idea. I'm going to work to do that today. Um, so it's really just, it's interesting to me. I tell people sometimes that 
in ways it's similar to being a public defender, that my client base is similar. Obviously not my client base because I represent companies, but the, the people who are involved in these issues, it's similar in the sense that it's the question is, what were you thinking? Like, why would you, why would you do that? Right. Um, so for me, it just, it's always interesting. There's always something new. The law is the same. It's a very well litigated area, which helps. Uh, but the facts are different. It just keeps you going. Cause you're just like, okay, yeah, that happened. <laughs> Yeah, so I've, I've heard before that everyone's decisions are rational in the context of their own perspective, but sometimes it's hard to imagine the perspective that they're bringing that makes the decisions rational. Right, like, okay. Hmm, I don't know about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so. <Right>. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so if somebody's interested in getting into the legal profession, but they're not sure that it's right for them, where do you... Um, where do you recommend they go to look for more resources or to, you know, just to learn more about whether it's a good fit before they make that kind of an investment in their education? I think the important thing to do, there are a couple of things you can do. One is absolutely talk to lawyers, right? Go and sit down and speak to lawyers. We see a lot of shows on TV. That's not how it works. <laughs> what we see on TV is not what happens in the courtroom. So we see, you know, a lot of people, oh, I want to be a lawyer because they think that they're going to be trying cases and they'll be in the courtroom all the time. While we do end up in trial sometimes and we do try cases, the work that we do to prepare those cases could be years, could be, I mean, hours and hours and hours that we prepare for those cases. And so sometimes people have an unrealistic view of what it means to be a lawyer. And so if, you, if someone wants to be a lawyer, first they need to think about what type of law do they want to practice, right? Because we all have our different specialties there. There are people who are generalists, but you will find that a lot of people really focus on, you know, one, two, three areas of the law. And so they should go speak to other lawyers, see if they can shadow them to see what their day-to-day -day work is, speak to lawyers at different in different stages of their career um, so that you can get the whole gamut of whether or not this is something that you want to do uh, for the long run. Go to a courthouse. One of the things before I went to um, law school or decided I was going to go to law school, I used to work in a trust company that was next to the courthouse. And when I was like bored or stressed or on lunch break, I would go over to the courthouse and I would just sit there and I would watch what was going on. And it was in Rhode Island, so it was very, like, pomp and circumstance, and it was very old courtroom, so it was beautiful. And so that intrigued me, right? And I was able to watch and see what was going on. So that is something else for them to do, like, go in there and see what is it like to be in there? What is it like to be a criminal lawyer, either a state attorney or a defense attorney, in the courtroom? What is it like to be a civil attorney who spends most time in the office or if you're a younger attorney, you know, doing research, you know, not necessarily being in the courtroom. So I think that's the best way to find out. Obviously, you can research online, but there's no substitute for having a conversation. I really love your advice about talking to people at different stages of their careers, because you know, I think so many of us will look a, a couple of years ahead of where mm -hmm. we are and seek someone out there or, um, you know, we'll pick like one point in time or one person that we know. Right. And it's so important, as you said, to get kind of a diverse representation of what's out there 
and talk to people who love their job and people who maybe don't and find out what don't they like about it, right? Right. So you're not going in with blinders on. Yeah, this profession is very stressful um, from different aspects. And as a, a black attorney, black female attorney, I have different stressors than white female attorneys or white males or black male attorneys. And so it is really important to have real world conversations with people to learn the good, the bad, the ugly. This, you know, being a lawyer has afforded me um, many opportunities. And as a lawyer, I can do things that some people can't, or I will, you know, allow me access to different things. However, the profession is very, very stressful, right? There are a lot of things we've had um, recently, you know, and it's been going on for years, obviously, but suicides and, you know, a lot of people, you know, their mental health declining. We've always had um, problems with alcoholism in the, in the profession. And so that's also something to um, look at is whether or not, how do you operate under stress? What is your tolerance for it? Because over the long run, it will, it could eat you up. Absolutely. And so I'm wondering in that, in, in some of what you said, I would imagine that a sense of community is really important so that you don't feel like you're doing this on your own. You're not dealing with the stress by yourself. Are there particular resources or groups that exist in the legal industry for people of color so that, you know, those intersections of race and gender, you know, you can find other black women, for example, who are going through what you're going through and build a sense of community there. So all the bar associations, the local bar associations generally have affinity groups, right? So for example, here in Florida, we have um, the Gwen Cherry Bar Association. So in South Florida, uh, we have the Virgil Hawkins Bar Association. There's also the National Bar Association, which is um, predominantly directed to African-American lawyers, but there are other minority lawyers. There are different Asian bar associations, um, Spanning Bar Association. So there are a plethora of groups that you could go to, Caribbean Bar Association. So there are places to go to have these conversations. You could probably reach out to the local bar association or the local bar to find out if there you know, are mentoring programs that you can, you can look into. But yeah, there are, there are these groups. I will say that Having those groups is wonderful because it gives you a place, you know, to go and see like-minded people. Um, but it still doesn't <laughs> take away from some of the, you know, it, it, it's it's great to have those groups. I wish that some of what we um, are trying to address by having those groups was a bigger focus for the bar at large. And sometimes they have, you know, they have their different, you know, oh, we're focused on mental health now, or, you know, every now and then they may do some diversity initiative, but, you know, those are places that they can go to really, young people can go to have these real world conversations that I'm talking to you about and, and talking to someone who just got out of law school, someone who's been practicing for five years, 10 years, somebody, like me, who's been practicing for almost 24 years, someone who's at the end of their career. People, here's they should also speak to people who are recovering lawyers, right? People who were in the profession and got out. Find out why. Like, what was it? Some people, it's just transitioning, right? They want to do something else. 
some people leave the profession because they cannot take it. There's something that happened in the profession. So it's important to speak to those people too. Okay. No, I think that's great advice. Thank you. And so what do you see in terms of the talent horizon for the legal industry? Are you, you know, are, so I know in some industries, you know, the, the workforce is almost aging out and there's not enough, um, you know, there aren't enough young people attracted to the industry to replace those retiring workers. What do you see as the talent horizon for, for the, excuse me, for the legal industry? We will never have a shortage of lawyers. Ever. <laughs> okay. Ever. I don't care how stressful this profession is. I don't care how much people talk about them, how many people leave. There'll never be a shortage of lawyers. People are, there are always people in law school. There are always people getting into the profession. Some because it's been their dream. Mm-hmm. Some because it is a gateway to opportunities. Some because they don't know any better. <laughs> Um, but I don't think there'll ever be a shortage. I think over time, uh, who comes into the profession is different, right? So whether there will be more women or there will be, you know, sometimes there are more men. I think uh, right now there's probably more women in law schools of the profession. But the profession itself, even though the demographics change, the, the profession itself and the way they relate to that demographic hasn't changed, really. Yeah. That makes sense. So I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk specifically about the work that you do in your company as an HR legal expert. Okay. Are you seeing a more proactive approach to sexual harassment prevention or um, response to sexual harassment? Yes. It's actually really a reaction. They're reacting, right? Because as I tell people, this has been going on forever. Me too is not new. It's not new to anybody who's been in business. So they are reacting to the fact that it's in the news. And so in that reaction, they are becoming more proactive with having, you know, sexual harassment training, make sure that they have training. The other thing, and this is something that I am focused on right now, is to really introduce bystander intervention training. Because what happens in the workplace a lot and why we end up with these cases or people, you know, companies end up getting sued is not the lack of knowledge that these things are happening, right? People complain all the time. Sometimes people don't. That's one of the things you learned from, from Me Too was that people don't complain. But the reason that they don't complain or one of the reasons they don't complain is because they feel that they're going to be retaliated against, they're going to be ostracized, you know, something, they are the ones who are going to end up on the losing end if they, you know, bring this to the forefront. And that's because, you know, they don't feel that they have people who will back them up. They don't have people who will stand up for them or say something. And so that is a real focus for me right now. I'm developing um, or I have developed my program, the Bystander Free Zone. And that is to really focus and empower people and embolden them to stand up and to speak up and to have the courage to do that. A lot of uh, what happens in the workplace is that when people see something, it's not that they don't want to say something. Most people want to intervene. Most people want to help. They just don't know what they're supposed to do. They don't know how they need to help, right? They don't know, you know, how much they're capable of helping and what that means. And so the training is really to raise the awareness and also to give them practical tools to understand that 
there is always something that you can do, right? There's a spectrum. I, I talk about this in my TEDx, um, which is on the bystander effect, um, is there's a spectrum from doing nothing to doing something. And in between there, there's a whole lot of things that we can do. And so while sexual harassment training is absolutely important, must be done in, you know, some states, for example, Georgia, just put into law that, you know, certain places have to have mandatory sexual harassment training. That really focuses on the legality. That focuses on, you know, victim harasser, victim accused. And so sometimes when you have that conversation from that context, you really block people out, right? People shut down because they're like, well, I'm not a harasser. I've never been a victim. So this is, you're not talking to me. Whereas bystander intervention training, being a bystander, people can really understand that there isn't really, there is some judgment to, you know, whether or not you're considered a bystander, but you can also put yourself in that place and then understand that there are things that you can do. Um, so there, that, in that regard, um, I think that, you know, they are trying and, and we hope that they keep it up. Even though I'm a defense attorney, people are like, oh, why are you worried about it? Because it's important to me, right? It's always been about being proactive so that they don't, you know, end up in litigation. Nope. So the program that you've created for bystanders, is that something that corporations can, can bring in house? Um, and, or is it something that individuals who are concerned about this can sign up for on their own? Absolutely. So the program is really designed to go across the board. There are different aspects of it because um, it's funny, this morning I woke up to see a video of a young boy singing a song to a friend who committed suicide over the weekend because he was being bullied, right? And so everyone needs this type of training. So the training is for um, middle school and high school. So that's one segment. Colleges, because that's a whole nother, they deal with a whole nother issue corporations, and of course, women, because we sometimes are bystanders in our own life. And while the outcome of the training will always be the same, right, to empower you to stand up and to speak up and to act up, the, the delivery, when, am I, when I'm speaking to them about what I'm training them about, what I'm bringing awareness about will always be different. And obviously, if there are individuals who need, you know, just one-to-one -one coaching, that's something that, you know, I can do also. But I think it's important. I mean, when you see things like that, when you think that, you know, our children are at nine and 10 years old are so hurt um, that they would think of hanging themselves like, uh, you know, that that's just beyond. Um, and to think that not only that they're hanging themselves, but then you have a friend who's singing about, you know, I know that you're in heaven. I know your mom and your dad miss you because you know you're being called the n-word because you're disabled and people are making fun of you and you know we watch the culture that we're in now and we are excusing or making excuses excuses for the behavior of adults and if we do that how can we uh, how can we expect our children to do better and to know better so i think it's really important training i think it's really important to to give people that courage to be able to stand up. And the more of us that do that, then we become the norm as opposed to those who are engaged in this behavior. Bless you for that. Oh, thank you. 
Thank you. And I think it's so important. One of the things that I try to impress upon people is the more you look like the abuser, the more you need to speak up Mm -hmm. because you know, you're then you're lending your privilege and and your, um, your social power to the aid of someone who really needs it. But you're also putting yourself on more equal footing with the person who's, who's engaged in the abuse Mm-hmm. And it gives them less of a less of a platform for their yeah. attacks. And I think it's also I think you know some of that too though puts a lot of pressure on people to think oh my god because I am you know similar to that person you expect me to do. And so for me you know when I talk about in my my TED talk is my TEDx is you know, are you compromising your own morals and values so that you can look within yourself, do self-reflection to figure out whether or not you decide that it's your responsibility to act, right? Not what someone else is doing, not what, you know, the crowd is doing. Personally, how do you feel about this and whether or not you should act? And I think that takes away some of the sting, that takes away some of the onus on people to think, well, I have to be the one to do it. No, you know that you are the one to do it because your morals, your values dictate that that's what you should do, right? So then it becomes a personal, a, something that is personal to you as opposed to you feel like, you know, everyone talks about white privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking that you are, in, you know, you have to do this for the race, right? You have to be the one to make it different or make people think differently of white people or black people or no, do it for you. I think if we all start there, then, you know, we can create this community of allies that we don't even have to worry about that. Like the affinity will not be color. The affinity will not be, you know, we live in the same place. The affinity will be that we are moral, valued, kind, compassionate human beings who know that what we see is not right and that something should be done. Kelly, that's beautiful. Thank you. That's transformative. Thank you. Um, So I wanted to ask you too. So I know that with, you know, sexual harassment training, there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of legalities. There are a lot of, you know, I hate to say check the box initiatives and companies, but for a lot of people, that's what they become. Um, And I think what you're doing is, is much broader and more transformative than that. But are you seeing any appetite in, in the business community for, racial harassment prevention training. We've seen so much in the news um, from companies who have just fallen down um, on their responsibility to protect their employees from, you know, from harassment or violence or the threat of violence. Is there any, um, any push for this in HR right now? No, there's no real focus on racial harassment. Listen, that's been going on forever, right? And it does not get the same, it's not as sexy, right, as sexual harassment. It's not as provocative as sexual harassment. It's also one of those things, one of the things about bystander intervention, about people speaking up, all of those things, one of those things is affinity, right? Do you, sort of what we were just talking about. Do you have a connection to somebody? Me too and sexual harassment is something that I think people can see across lines, right? You can see anybody being subject to that. Racial harassment, however, you can really, if you are not of color, 
you can really separate yourself from that. You really don't understand the magnitude and the impact, right? I've been, you know, all the time that I've been a lawyer, you know, I have felt the impact of unconscious bias, but I've also experienced the power of and the courage of people standing up and saying something or doing something, right? So there's not that same appetite. And it's funny that you say, you know, this training is basically <laughs> CYA and it has been that for a long time. And one of the things, um, last year I wrote a book on conducting workplace investigations. It's called Ace Your Workplace Investigations, a step-by-step guide for avoiding friction. <laughs> I see it's nodding your head. <laughs> avoiding friction, covering your assets, and earning employee trust. And the focus of the book is while there, you know, it does t- take you step-by-step through the process of conducting the investigations, is really about focusing on the benefits and the trust that you can build with your employees. And if we do that, if we have this mutually respectful and beneficial relationship between owners, management, HR, and the employees, then a lot of these issues will dissipate. A lot of these issues will be reduced because you won't create an environment in which they can thrive. Um, So like sexual harassment, racial harassment, religious, it's all there. Um, but I think it's, it's harder to make that the, you know, flag in the sand for a lot of people because it's harder to, to, to put that across everybody's, you know, that where everybody can empathize or everyone can understand or internalize the feeling of it. If if I can give you an example of something else. So, you know, we had Starbucks, the Starbucks incident where the um, black men were arrested in the Starbucks. And I use this in my training when I do unconscious bias training, because I ask people, why do you think there was such an outpouring? Why do you think that this was such a huge thing? Black men are arrested every day, all day, malls, you know, walking down the street and people don't intervene. People don't, you know, cry out. People aren't, you know, trying to um, boycott, right? The reason, though, is because in that situation, even though they were black men and people couldn't necessarily identify with them being black men, there were so many people who could identify across racial lines, across gender, across every protected category there is, every difference that we have. They could identify with having sat in a Starbucks waiting for a friend, having not purchased anything, right? And so... That affinity, that connection brought, brought people into this whole thing. And that's why it was, there was such a big deal and there was such a big outcry. It wasn't that these two black men were arrested in Starbucks. It was that there were so many other people who weren't like them who could identify with that. And so that's where these things start. It's this affinity. What is the affinity? What is it about that situation that I can empathize with or internalize in order to open my mind to understanding that, you know, I either need to say something or do something. That's a really interesting perspective. And when I saw that, that news story break, you know, first of all, I was angry that the video that they showed was two black men in handcuffs. Right. Right. Because that just reinforces every stereotype, stereotype stereotype of black men in the media. Right. 
And mm-hmm. I'm like, why wasn't it reported that two real estate agents got their whole day? It, I mean, anybody who conducts business, anybody who is a, <laughs> a, a business owner who knows if you're supposed to meet a client and you get arrested while you're meeting that client on no charges, you're right. in jail all day. Like how much money did that cost these men, right? How much did it cost them with the clients that they had? Did they lose deals? Like, and so, you know, the, just the fact that it was like two people minding their own business get arrested for no reason <laughs> because they're black, right? right? And and it, oh, it made me, and so I, I can see where you're coming from in terms of the the affinity um, perspective there because I absolutely did relate to that. I mean, instantly I was like, that probably cost them a fortune as entrepreneurs and independent right. agents and, you know, not to mention just the embarrassment of, right. you know, I can't imagine sitting down in Starbucks and the cops coming for me. Right. And, and that's an interesting perspective too, that you just, you know, said, you know, the, the, the not attaching any type of um, significance to them. Right. The, it's almost like they were just these two black men in there. No, they were business people, just like all the other people who sit in Starbucks and set up their office, you know, set up their printers and their laptops. $3 on a cup of coffee. So you're entitled to that Wi-Fi all day. Right. (laughs) Um, So that, that's also interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Thank you. So I want to make this a little bit personal. Okay. For you. So um, two sentences I'd like for you to finish. The first one is I feel included when. I feel included when I, my skills, my opinions, my ideas are respected, are valued, and are correctly attributed to me. I love that. And that is important. It is so hard to to give of yourself and have someone else take that away and disconnect it with you. Right. And... (laughs) And run with it. And so the second, the second sentence I would love for you to finish is when I feel included, I, I'm unstoppable. Oh, beautiful. And I think (laughs) you're unstoppable anyway, Kelly. You are. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. so much for having this conversation with me. I learned so much from you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.